Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I flew to northern Maine for a quick trip to visit some family, and I uh, got a series of texts from you, and we had our own boo effect. This was kind of weird. It was so weird. So I had asked you about the uh, the do-do-do-do-do thing. Mana-mana. Right. Yeah. Um, we had, because you might remember that it came up in a previous episode, mm-hmm. and so I'd messaged you about it, and then you just messaged me back, holy crap, you won't believe this. And then I got a video in my text feed and it was a video of you playing a record of the Manamana song. What happened was I saw your text and you referenced that and I walked out into the kitchen. I was staying at my sister's house and she had dug out her old 45 vinyl collection and we were kind of going through it, you know, a nostalgia thing. The very top record the one at the very top of a pile of about maybe 50 records was the Manamana D-D-D-D-D song. That's unbelievable. So I had to videotape me playing it to prove that I, <laughs> <laughs> we actually did have our own boo effect. And then I listened to it 18 times in a row. I bet. Did you find any other good records? Found a lot of great records. I found stuff that actually had been mine when I was a kid and my sister somehow ended up with them uh so it was it was a nice little journey back into uh into time yeah we listened to shannon by henry gross about eight times (laughs) and wept profusely it's such a sad song and now i'm thinking about that and i'm starting to get teary-eyed so i'm gonna move on to (laughs) to my topic what you got for me amy wolf is an american woman she made headlines for her unusual love story a love story that involved her and a roller coaster She claimed to have fallen in love with a specific roller coaster at an amusement park in Pennsylvania when she was 13 years old. And she would go visit this roller coaster for years. And after years of riding it, she developed an emotional connection 
with the roller coaster and decided to marry it in 2009 in a ceremony that took place in front of friends, family, and the media. Although the ceremony was not legally binding, sure. Wolf stated that it was a symbolic gesture of her love for the coaster. Wolf has since moved on for, from her relationship with the roller coaster and is now currently married to a boring man. Did she divorce from the roller coaster or? A legal proceeding I don't think was necessary. She just kind of wrote the roller coaster off. I hope she broke it to it gently. I just think that if you had a ceremony to get married mm, to it, then mm. it would be apropos Only to fair. have a ceremony to divorce from it. Now, Amy was part of a subculture known as objectum sexuality. Objectum sexuality is a rare and often misunderstood phenomenon <laughs> in which individuals experience romantic attraction toward objects such as buildings, vehicles, or other inanimate objects. People who experience objectum sexuality often feel a deep emotional connection to their object of choice and may even believe that the object has a consciousness or a personality. Some objectum sexual individuals experience romantic relationships with the chosen object, while others may simply feel a deep emotional attachment or sense of companionship towards the object. Right. I remember seeing a clip about a dude who was in love with this car. Yeah. And it was a it was a fine car. I mean, it wasn't like a special car. I think it was like a Corolla or oh, something. It was special to and, him. No, exactly. Mm. And I remember thinking like, well, I you know, I love my car. I I mean, at the time, I think I had Paige, and so I was, you know, I was very emotionally connected to Paige. Paige was your uh, GMC envoy. Yes, we had a really deep, close relationship. Right. But then um, this guy was like making out with his car, and I was like, oh, okay, so that's different. Yeah, he stuck his tongue in her tailpipe. And hey, whatever you're into, some objectum sexuality indivi individuals actually do engage in intimate acts with their chosen object, such as kissing, hugging, or even having sex with the object. And the thing is, most of the time, these objects aren't objects meant to be having sex with. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Like if you fell in love with and, you know, with a sex doll, that would be pretty understandable. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's what the product is used for in that, you know. Right. Not like a park bench, you know? Yeah, or a knife set. Oh. Yeah, that wouldn't be. Anyway, objectum sexuality is often seen by society as a bizarre or even pathological phenomenon. Most objectum sexual individuals argue that their attraction to objects is no different from other forms of sexual attraction. They may point out that uh, people can be attracted to a wide range of objects from clothing to, car, to cars to food and that their attraction to objects is simply an extension of this. Now, despite the controversy and the obvious stigma that surrounds it, some individuals who identify as objectum sexual have formed online communities and support groups to connect with others who share their experiences. And for those individuals, having a support group, uh, an understanding community can be an important source of uh, acceptance. I'm sure it can be, but I bet it's also super frustrating because regardless of which group you identify with, mm. there are going to be people in that group that are 
dicks and on the internet <laughs> it's worse uh-huh. so you know you're gonna be in that group and thinking you're in a safe place but someone's gonna be like <laughs> really you're attracted to that lamp <laughs> weirdo meanwhile they're into like a kitchen faucet right yeah so they're, they're posting their undying love to a um a fister <laughs> fister faucets you know anyway The history of objectum sexuality is relatively unknown. It's a relatively recent phenomenon that uh, has only gained some attention in recent years. The term objectum sexuality was first coined, though, in the 1990s by Iarita Eklof Berlinger Maurer. Oh. Iarita Eklof Berlinger Maurer, also known as the Berlin Wall Woman, was a Finnish woman who gained international attention for her unusual obsession with the Berlin Wall. She claimed to have fallen in love with the wall back in 1961 when she first saw it on television and later married it in a ceremony in 1979. And despite the physical barrier, Hmm. uh, she reportedly visited the wall frequently and even changed her last name to Berlinger Mauer, which means Berlin Wall in German. Eklof Berlinger Mauer passed away in September of uh, 2015 at the age of 63. And though she coined the phrase in the early 90s, there have been reports of individuals experiencing romantic or sexual attraction to objects dating back to the early 20th century. Oh, I have no doubt that it's always existed. It's probably just that we live in a society where there are opportunities to connect with other people of similar Mm. types. So it's just easier to find that those groups do exist. And perhaps prior to the 20th century, it's not something that uh, they wanted to openly talk about. Exactly. Here are a few people who fit into this category. Erica Eiffel. Erica Eiffel is a woman who claims to be in love with the with Eiffel. the Sears Tower? No, the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> the Eiffel Tower. Uh, <laughs> she even changed her name to Eiffel to reflect her love for the structure. Otherwise, that would be so a weird-ass weird coincidence. Yeah. Edward Smith is a British man, and maybe this is the guy that you were talking about. Um, he claims to be in love with his white Volkswagen Beetle. No, this guy's car was red. It was red, yeah. I was thinking of the same. I, for some reason, I was thinking it was like a, a Camaro or something like that. Maybe not. Anyway, Edward's car, the, uh, the white Volkswagen Beetle, he named Vanilla. Uh, he's been featured in documentaries and news article, articles discussing his objectum sexuality. Joachim A. is a German man who claims to be in a romantic relationship with a piece of garden furniture, also a metal fence and a train station. Oh, he's poly. He's poly objectum. He is uh, one of a few objectum sexual individuals who uh, are more than willing to talk about and publicly discuss his experiences and feelings. So he's often featured in documentaries as well. I wonder, I mean, you might be getting into this, but if there's something crisscrossed in the brain where those feelings of love and affection and sexuality are you know, supposed to be going in one direction mm. and accidentally intersect with... A crisscross of some sort. Crisscross. Yeah. Oh, I forgot this. Edward Smith, the guy that I told you about earlier who was in love with... Uh, Vanilla? Yes. He also claims to have had romantic interludes with a helicopter and a metal transformer. Oof, that's dangerous. Mm, maybe that's what's exciting for him, though. Then there was Amanda Whitaker. She is also from Britain, a British woman. She claims to have fallen in love with a drum kit when she was a teenager. 
She then claims to have uh, moved on and had a romantic and sexual attraction to the Statue of Liberty in New York City. Uh, She was even married to the statue in a ceremony in Las Vegas. She later changed her name to Amanda Liberty and uh, then eventually legally married a chandelier in, uh, in 2019. So it doesn't seem like their attraction is contained to one type of thing. Mm. It's not like, oh, I left this bench for another bench. Yeah, it's like a whole different object. Interesting. Many times. Lee Jin Yu is a South Korean man who married a large pillow that features an anime character on it. He claims that he f- instantly fell in love with this pillow after seeing it in a store and began treating it as his uh, girlfriend. See, that's what I mean. That one, That's more... Well, it's snuggly. Yeah, I can. Yeah. It's easier to envision some sort of a romantic interlude with a pillow. Than I've had a body pillow before that I became very friendly with. <laughs> well, it's easier to do that with a with a body pillow than, say, a chain link fence. Right. Um, objectum sexuality is not widely recognized as a valid sexual orientation, and there's a limited there's limited research on the subject. Therefore. There are no well-known or public figures who have come forward to publicly identify themselves as objective or objectum sexual. It's important to remember that objectum sexuality is very personal and private experience, and individuals who identify as such may not choose to publicly discuss their feelings or experiences even today. Right, so it's hard to know exactly how widespread it might be. Now, is there a cause for objectum? For, yes, right, for objectum sexuality. Well, perhaps, perhaps there is. ResearchGate tested 34 OS individuals. They've abbreviated it to OS. Uh-huh. And also 88 controls. And uh, this research provides the first empirical evidence that OS is linked to two separate neurodevelopmental traits, autism and synesthesia. Um, autism makes total sense to me because of the people that I know with autism do connect intensely Mm. with inanimate objects. Sure. I don't know anyone with OS as far as I know, but I do know people who are like absolutely enthralled with ceiling fans or obsessed with train schedules. Fine. The research paper says, quote, We show that OS individuals possess significantly higher rates of diagnosed autism and significantly stronger autistic traits compared to controls, as well as significantly higher prevalence of synesthesia and uh, significant synesthetic traits inherent in the nature of their attractions. Mm -hmm. Our result suggests that OS may encapsulate autism and synesthesia within its phenomenology. And that makes perfect sense because we've discussed synesthesia before, and that basically is your brain crisscrossing mm-hmm. to seemingly unrelated things. Like Oliver Sacks' book, um, The Man Who Thought His Wife Was a Hat. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. I also I saw a TikTok the other day by a doctor who was talking about the frequency that autistic people believe or assume that inanimate objects have feelings. So this is just kind of a a further development of that condition. It seems that way. It makes a lot of sense. And I know like when I was a young person, I had a really hard time with like my stuffed animals. They all had to be treated equally. 
Mm. If one didn't get to be on the bed during the day, then I felt really badly. Like, what if he fell off the bed? And I, you know, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I had a friend who, when we were very, very young, I'd sleep over at his house. We'd have a sleepover. And he insisted on having exactly nine stuffed animals on his bed because that was the number of people on a baseball team. I love that. Isn't that cute? I think that's quirky as fuck, and I love it. ResearchGate wrapped up uh, their little synopsis, uh, the, uh, the overview of their research by saying, our data speak to debates concerning the biological underpinnings of sexuality, to models of autism and synesthesia, and to psychological and philosophical models of romantic love. It's yeah. all very intricate and tied together and, and interesting. Well, I think it's easy sometimes to mistake what we feel, like our feelings of love and romance and infatuation and stuff, as hmm. some sort of sophisticated, element and it is in no way I mean it is brain chemistry and hormones and I mean it's not you thinking oh yes this is a fine mate for me look at those birthing hair you know I mean it is often just primal and chemicals and there's nothing highfalutin about what you're attracted to so to yuck anyone else's yum as they say (laughs) I think is a little silly hey if nobody's being hurt and the um, electric beater is consenting, sure, have at it. And unplugged. That's always wise. My uh, information came from ResearchGate, Nature Journal, and Wikipedia. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, 
Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. You're listening to the Box of Oddities. The question is, why? Ah, incontinence. It's a real drag. And throughout history, humans have tried to find ways to cure it. The ancient Romans got very creative and came to the conclusion that they could cure incontinence with the bladder of a hyena, a roasted seahorse, and boiled mice. Not sure in what combination, though. Crystal sent us an email. Hey, Kat and JG, I just recently started listening to your podcast thanks to Dan Cummins. I've heard you mention him several times, and his podcast, Scared to Death, is where I first heard of Box of Oddities. Anyway, wanted to tell you both since I began listening, along with many others, every time I hear you talk about something I may know a little bit about, I wish I could just call and chime in. <laughs> I love it. You guys are awesome. So, on to my point. I'm listening to Box 121, where you're talking about Sears Kit Homes. Oh that, my gosh, that was so much fun. That was your topic, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And my grandparents lived in one and I didn't realize it until you did that topic and I recognized their house in the old Sears catalog uh, order form. That's so cool. Well, I grew up in one of those homes. Yes! I always thought my mom was yanking my chain when she told me it was from the Sears catalog, <laughs> but as you know, it's actually a thing. Sadly, the integrity of the home was compromised when my parents resided and took out an oversized round door, the most prominent and beautiful feature of the home. Any hoozle, I just got excited when I heard this topic and thought, what better time than now to say hello and tell you that I am a fan for life. Thanks, weirdos. Love you guys. Crystal. Thank you so much. And I always want to hear about your Sears kit homes. Never think, oh, well, they did that so long ago. Maybe yeah. they, you know, no, I always want to hear about your Sears kit homes. Curator at the box of oddities.com. So as you know, every once in a while, I will share one of our better negative reviews on the social meds. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty upset when I reached out to you the other day. You were in Maine and I sent you a message and I was like, somebody said something mean to us on social media. <laughs> and you were like, no. And I, so I told you I had made one of those do not listen to the box of oddities things. And... 
a comment on that post was, oh, I stopped listening to them a long time ago. I hate how much they love each other, and I hate how little interest they show in the topics they talk about. Yeah, you told me that, and I said, that sounds like a joke. And I was like, no, because they said two things. And, you know, maybe people don't think that we're interested about forks or soup. And <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I wrote back, and I was like, you know, I totally can't fault you for the, the love thing. It is very very gross, you know, uh, <laughs> but I want to assure you, we really do care about the things that we talk about. And I just sat in my sad for a couple of days uh -huh. until I just got a notification that said, oh, my God, I just realized you can't understand sarcasm through text. <laughs> I love your podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so you were right. That's sweet. And I feel terrible, but also better, but also terrible. <laughs> We're very fortunate that uh, the negative comments we get are, are, are relatively few and most of them are misspelled. I think it's cute that I, I love making those negative review promos and you are okay with it as long as they're not negative about me specifically. Mm. It's adorable that you're like, no, we will not share that. <laughs> as long as it's negative about both of us or the show as a whole, that's fine. Right. But if yeah. it's just like cats annoying, you're like, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I just feel bad for people that are that stupid. That's... Oh, you're so... Anyway. Shut up. Stop it. We, we're loving each other too much, and that's going to drive listeners away. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more... We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil. Did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Thomas Fitzpatrick. 
is often referred to as Tommy Fitz or Wrong Way Tommy. He was an Irish-American pilot. Although there is limited information available on Fitzpatrick's early and personal life, we do know that he worked in New York City as an airplane mechanic and he was a steam fitter. We also know that Fitzpatrick had been enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps during both World War II and the Korean War, and that he was a recipient of two Purple Hearts. According to Fitzpatrick's brother, he had lied about his age in order to serve in World War II, and he joined the U.S. Marine Corps at the age of 15, fighting in China, which I can't even fathom that. At 15, my concerns were... Levi's and Whoopie Pies. Sure. When I was 15, my concern was the rebels marching on Gettysburg. Those were difficult times. <laughs> his exact roles and the battles that he participated in uh, or and the nature of his injuries aren't readily available, but we do know that he then joined the U.S. Army and was stationed in Japan. He was scheduled to return home when the Korean War began. Fitzpatrick became the first person from New York City to be wounded in Korea. According to one report, he was wounded while driving an ammunition truck to rescue some American soldiers trapped by fire. But back in the States, in September of 1956, Thomas Fitzpatrick, who was living in New Jersey at the time, was visiting his friends in Washington Heights in New York City. He frequently visited that area, hanging out with his friends at a local bar. While they were there, a bet was proposed that Thomas could not travel from Jersey to the Heights within 15 minutes. He initially disregarded the challenge, but after returning home later that night, it remained on his mind and it just kept bugging him. <clears throat> he sounds like the type of person that uh, could not put down a challenge. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's accurate. Fitzpatrick left his house again and entered a single-engine plane at the Teterboro School of Aeronautics. <laughs> and encouraged by his valor that earned him a Purple Heart during the war and also alcohol, he took flight. Now, did he know how to fly? Or He did, yes. Okay. It was one of the things that he did when he was in he, the Marines in the and in the Army. Okay. He flew the plane back to New York City. I'm assuming in under 15 minutes. He made a drunken precision landing at around 3 a.m. on St. Nicholas Avenue near 191st Street. Oh, my God. Very near to the bar the bet had been made in. Jim Clark, who had lived the area and recalled seeing the plane in the street, was quoted <laughs> in the New York Times. Supposedly, he had planned on landing on the field at George Washington High School, but it wasn't lit up at night, so he had to land on St. Nicholas instead. Fitzpatrick won the bet, but he was subsequently arrested. The plane's owner, though, refused to press charges, so instead of going to jail for grand larceny, he was charged with violating the city's administrative code, which prohibits landing a plane in the street, mm. and he was fined $100. That's a good code, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it's a pretty good code. Yeah. 100 bucks, huh? Yeah. His pilot's license was also suspended for six months. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So Tommy Fitzpatrick, as you said, had a hard time ignoring a challenge. And he obviously was very brave because, of, you know, all of his war and purple mm. hearts and all that right. business. But he also had a bit of a fondness for the drink. 
I see. I see. All of these things together. It's a dangerous combination. Yeah. Yeah. He sounds like the kind of guy like uh, Marty McFly when you call him chicken. Yeah. You know. Kind of like that. Chicken. Well, obviously, uh, the punishment he received was not that much. In fact, Fitzpatrick was treated almost like a folk hero. Even the New York Times called it a fine landing and reported that it had been widely called a feat of aeronautics. Even Sergeant Harold Brands of the Police Aviation Bureau said the odds of sticking the landing like that were 100,000 to one. Especially when you factor in alcohol consumption. Not everyone was impressed, though. Two years later, Judge John Mullen said, had you been properly jolted then, it's possible this would not have occurred a second time. What? He did it again? Yeah. A Washington Heights native, as I said, Fitzpatrick was living in New Jersey, but still would head back into town to hang out with his friends who were regulars at the bars. And... Almost exactly two years later, Fitzpatrick, once again at the bar Mm -hmm. on October 4th, 1958, felt challenged by a fellow bar patron who doubted his tale of the initial flight. Okay, so his reaction was to suit up and do it again rather than dig out the New York Times article? Right, it would have been pretty easy. It was pretty well documented, right? But instead, Fitzpatrick procured another airplane from the same New Jersey airfield that he'd swiped the first plane from and took off. He piloted the aircraft over the Hudson River and made a successful landing on Amsterdam and 187th Street in Manhattan. Wow. I imagine it was near that beautiful yeshiva school for boys, that absolutely stunning building, which I cannot get over, but that's unrelated entirely. But, but in your mind, that's yep. that's the background. Sam Garcia, who saw the plane as a child resting on 191st Street, said, I thought maybe they had trucked the plane in <laughs> as a practical joke because there is no way a man had landed in that narrow street. But he had. Unbelievable. And then he fled the scene. But Fitzpatrick eventually gave himself up. After denying that it was him that had landed this plane in the street (laughs) to the police, and multiple people came forward and said, yeah, no, it was Tommy Fitzpatrick. Yeah, Tommy Fitz. It was, yeah. Mm. He eventually said, it's the lousy drink. Mm. That was his quote in the New York Daily News. (laughs) Fitzpatrick told the police that, yeah, he had held a pilot's license, but after that first flight, when it was suspended, he never renewed it because Uh, he didn't want to fly again. mm -hmm. But that didn't stop him. No. You calling me chicken? Anyway, as I said, this time the judge was not impressed and his actions resulted in a more severe punishment. Fitzpatrick was sentenced to six months in prison. Ooh. Yeah. I wonder if he served the whole time. I didn't see anything that said otherwise. Mm-hmm. Okay. His audacious exploits have been recounted in numerous articles and retellings, which do make him kind of a legendary figure in aviation history. But his story serves as a bit of a cautionary tale about the dangers of alcohol, as well as an example of the extraordinary lengths some will go to to prove a point or win a bet. (laughs) It is worth noting, though, that the two incidents, while dangerous and illegal and irresponsible, did not result in any injuries or damages. 
Fitzpatrick's ability to land the stolen planes on city streets without causing harm or damage is a testament to his skill as a pilot. But the fact that he did it at all speaks to something else entirely. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. One needs to know when it's one's time to say no. Exactly. Fred Hartling, an old neighbor of Fitzpatrick's, talked about the young pilot's early antics in the New York Times and said, Tommy had a crazy side. (laughs) Yes, he did. Yeah, Hartling's brother, Pat, was good friends with Fitzpatrick, and Hartling said the two were part of a wild bunch of friends, and that this was just kind of what they did. What they did. It actually reminded me a little bit of stories that I've heard about my dad and his brothers when they were kids. They- I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One guy told me anytime they came into a bar or something, it was always like, oh, the Walls boys are here. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go again. (laughs) Causing trouble. Yeah. Anyway, it's cute because it's not happening to me. Fitzpatrick eventually did settle down, as did my dad, by the way. Uh, There were no more incidents of inebriated aeronautics. He and his (laughs) wife, Helen, and their three sons lived in Washington Township, New Jersey, and Tommy Fitzpatrick died in 2009 at the age of 79. His story has become a part of aviation lore and New York City history, demonstrating the incredible feats that can be achieved even under inadvisable circumstances. Fitzpatrick even has a mixed drink named for him and his feet called the Late Night Flight. Hmm. It was assembled by Danny Beeson of the New Leaf in Manhattan. It was in the same neighborhood where Fitzpatrick landed the plane. I hesitate, though, to call it a mixed drink because it's a layered drink and it's meant to resemble the New York City nighttime sky. It includes a half ounce of Kahlua, one and a half ounces vodka, a half ounce Chambord, five blackberries, an egg white, and a dash of simple syrup. Wow, that sounds disgusting. I like the sound of it, except for that egg white thing. Like, I can't get on board egg whites in a beverage. I got my information from the New York Times from 1958, the New York Times from 1956, (laughs) Dinner Party Download, Wikipedia, of course, All That's Interesting, and the New York Times 2016. That's an amazing story. I'd not heard about this guy. Wow. (laughs) Not once, but twice. Thanks to our latest patrons, people who have joined the Order of Freaks and are supporting the podcast. Milo uh, recently joined, as did David, and we do appreciate that. If you would like to become a member of the Order of Freaks, support the podcast. You'll get episodes that are ad-free. You'll get them a bit early, monthly Zoom calls, bonus episodes, and so much more. Just go to our website, theboxofoddities.com, and click on the link. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. (laughs) 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.